Cue sappy music. Hey there, Fighting for the Faith podcast listener. Just want to remind you at the top of the program here that Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. You know, no, the music isn't working. Kill the music. Yeah, sorry, I see other guys who use sappy music. I, uh, bad idea. Remind me to talk to you after the program. Anyway, just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions to keep bringing this program to you. If you don't support us financially already, visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on one of the friendly yellow buttons. Fill it all out. You know what to do. Or if you would like to do the traditional thing, you can make your check payable to Fighting for the Faith. Send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Okay, now you can play your music. Yeah. Enjoy listening to the program. I enjoyed making it. I hope you enjoy listening to it. Here we go. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Tuesday, May 28th, 2013. Okay, so here's the downside to three-day weekends. Tuesday feels like Monday. Wednesday feels like Tuesday. It causes <laughs> you to become discombobulated. But I did enjoy the uh, time off. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There is no shortage of crazy things being said out there. We take the time to open up our Bibles and think critically, to think biblically. In other words, here's the idea. Each and every one of us, this would include me, all of us, we were born dead in trespasses and sins, and we all have a sinful nature. Even if you're a Christian, you still have a sinful nature. And if you're confused about this, look at Romans chapter 7, all written in the present tense. Paul was not talking about something he uh, had been a long time ago or a struggle he had before he was a Christian. He's talking about the struggle that he has with his, or had with his sinful flesh at the time he was writing the, the epistle to the church at Rome. So, that being the case, each and every one of us must understand that our sinful nature manifests itself not only in sinful passions, it's sinful desires and lusts. You know, you think of greed and lust and adultery and things like that, but a coveting, but also our sinful flesh, well, by its corrupted nature, is at war with God and doesn't think God's thoughts. In fact, over and again, you see in the New Testament, the concept of our, of our minds being transformed and renewed by the word of God. So the idea here is this, is that there's, you know, Christian sanctification is not just, not just manifested in the way in which we behave towards others um, and in the things that we do, uh, you know, with other human beings, but it's also a, a transformation of our mind towards God's thoughts and what he has revealed. And oftentimes, you know, people who are new to the faith or new to Christianity will come across a biblical passage and they'll go, 
no, no way. And, you know, and just think of something, you know, for instance, somebody who grew up in the in the uh, public schools has been taught that evolution has been proved beyond a shadow of a doubt. And that it's foolish to challenge materialistic scientists on these things. You know, you come across Jesus's belief that, well, the uh, the earth was created and that God created Adam and Eve. Paul's claim to such a case as well. And then you read Genesis and you go, it says the world was created in six days. So what do you do with that answer? Real simple. You need to bend the knee. Trust God's word. Trust Jesus. Jesus knew what he was talking about. Jesus didn't make a mistake when he affirmed uh, the the six day creation. When he affirmed the global flood. When he affirmed that no uh, that uh, Jonah was in the belly of the fish, large fish for you know for three days. All of those things really were historical events. You say, how can that be? How can that be? How can that be? Do you think it's difficult for God to do such a thing? I mean, really? We're talking about God here. <laughs> you get what I'm saying? So just because your mind might have a problem with it and understand you still have a sinful flesh and your mind is not intuitively tuned to the things of God. In fact, the last thing you want to trust is your mind per se, uh, especially if if you had to have a choice. Am I going to trust God's word here or am I going to trust my reason? I'm going to have my reason bend the knee to God and understand that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's the beginning of knowledge. And so all of that being said, the idea here is is, is that what we find happening in much of Christianity today, especially as biblical illiteracy rises to practically an all-time high within the visible church, well, we have the, along with it, uh, the, an increase of almost at the exact same pace of false teaching in the Christian church, teaching that does not accord with what God's word says, teaching that has not bent the knee to what God's word said. And people who seem to think that just because they thunk a thought means that their thunk, their thunk thought e- equals sound biblical theology and doctrine. Well, it doesn't. And so this is the program that teaches you to slow down, Stop the tape. Listen to what people are saying. Pause for a second. Challenge what people are saying and do so with an open Bible with passages in context so that you're not schnookered or bamboozled or hoodwinked by somebody who's not rightly handling God's word, but instead maybe making merchandise of you or worse. Uh, they're agents of the devils, you know, wolves in sheep's clothing, the type of people that Jesus himself warned us about. And we try, of course, to have a little bit of fun along the way. Now, let's talk about what we're going to do on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. This is a short week because of the three-day holiday here at uh, in the United States. And so what we will do, at least I will strive to do this this week, we will have four normal episodes of Fighting for the Faith this week without a light edition. The, the light would have been yesterday, but, you know, yesterday was, you get what I'm saying. So we're going to strive for four new episodes this week, normal length episodes. And uh, today's will be slightly different. And uh, let me explain what we're going to do today. Uh, we're going to start off with... Um, Oh, man. William Tapley, the third eagle of the apocalypse and co-prophet of the end times. Now, if you've ever read the book of Daniel, well, one of the things you will note about the prophecies, uh, the visions that Daniel had regarding the end of the world and things like that, is that their meaning is sealed up. You know, it, it says seal the vision, right? This is, a, you know, especially in Daniel chapter 7. Well, <sighs> Apparently, uh, William Tapley, the third eagle of the apocalypse and co-prophet of the end times, feels that he now has the authority to unseal 
Daniel's prophecies. So if you've ever been wondering, you know, when would the time be for us to unseal Daniel's prophecies? Well, according to William Tapley, the time is now and he's the guy to do it. Yeah, no joke. <laughs> no joke. So then what we're going to do is we're going to switch gears and um, take a look at kind of a weird practice within the seeker-driven church. Have you ever considered uh, having your church become a community of unbelievers? You're thinking, well, if it's a community of unbelievers, it's not a church. Yeah, I know. That's what the Bible teaches. But apparently there's some missional guys out there who really think it's a great idea to have a community of unbelievers. Yeah, um, so we'll be listening to one of them today, although I don't have, I haven't figured out any update music for that person. I, I might have to <clears throat> add, you know, just patch something together here. I'm not sure what to patch together, but we'll think of something maybe on the fly. And then what we will do to then also uh, in this first hour, uh, uh, Carl Truman has a new op-ed piece out over his Reformation 21 blog. And the name of it is The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie. And um, he does a fine job of interacting with a quote from Andy Stanley's latest book called Deep and Wide, which I think is uh, he did a fine job there and does some good job of challenging some of these ideas put out by Andy Stanley. And then in hour number two, we're not going to have a normal sermon review today. What we're going to be doing is earlier today I recorded an interview with Dr. James White of Alpha and Omega Ministries uh, regarding his latest book, What Every Christian Needs to Know About the Quran. And, uh, in, you know, it's just absolutely a great book. Read it over the weekend. Fantastic job by him. And, uh, so we're going to introduce you to, uh, James White's thinking regarding what you need to know about the Quran. It'll be worth it. And hopefully you'll also pick up a copy of the book. Cause again, it, having read it over the weekend, it's just absolutely fantastic. It's a little difficult, uh, at first to kind of get used to some of the vocabulary in the, in the Eastern mindset that goes along with it. But if you take the time to work your way through this and you, I think it'll absolutely be beneficial in helping your understanding of what Islam teaches and what the Quran is, itself specifically says regarding the Trinity, Jesus, Christianity, and uh, things of that nature. And, uh, and Dr. White also throws in some very good apologetic arguments that really get right to the nub of the matter as to whether or not the Quran is really of divine origin or not. So, it, again, I'm looking forward to uh, uh, playing that interview that we recorded earlier today uh, in hour number two. So with all of that said, it's uh, time for us to dive into the program proper. And since we are doing a William Tapley, Third Eagle of the Apocalypse, co-prophet of the end times, boy, that's a mouthful, update, it requires us to do, well, this. That's great, it starts with an earthquake, birds and snakes and airplanes. Boom, 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 boom. 
Boom. All right. Yeah, that's our uh, William Tapley, Third Eagle of the Apocalypse, and co-prophet of the End Times update music. And uh, here's his latest <clears throat> YouTube video where he claims to now have the authority and insight to unseal the sealed prophecies found in the book of Daniel. No joke. Here we go. Here's William Tapley. Welcome to Revelation Unraveled. I'm your host, William Tapley, also known as the Third Eagle of the Apocalypse and the co-prophet of the end times. People often ask me, how near are we to the end? How much time do we have left? Well, I'm here to tell you today that those questions are no longer relevant. We don't have any time left. We are at the end right now. All right, so there you go. I mean, pack your bags. We're at the end. (laughs) I mean, it's so amazing that he's the one who saw this coming. And God is sending us many, many signs that we are at the end. And one of those very sure signs is that your co-prophet is unsealing the prophecies of Daniel. Oh, man. Talk about getting too big for your own prophetic britches. (laughs) Good gravy. Seriously? So, oh, one of the signs we're getting is that it's the end as well. Your co-prophet. Notice he said your co-prophet. Who is he co-profiting with, by the way? Never been able to figure that out. We continue. The angel tells Daniel that his prophecies would be sealed up until the very end. Let's look at Daniel chapter 12, verse number 4. But you, O Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book, even to the time of the end. And verse number 9. And he said, Go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. But how did Daniel seal up his prophecies? Well, this is the very interesting part. As I have been explaining in this series on the abomination of desolation, which Daniel describes in his last five chapters, he uses many Hebrew literary devices, such as pairs, parallelism, chiasms, and so on. And each chapter is a little different. Now, in this particular program, I want to talk about Daniel chapter 7, which is not part of the Abomination of Desolation series, but it does lead up to those chapters. And once again, Daniel uses a completely unique structure. And once we understand the structure, we find that there is a prophecy in the structure itself, and we understand the prophecy. Oh, no. Somebody take his Bible and his Bible commentaries away from him. So let's take a look at the structure of Daniel, chapter number 7. In order to understand the hidden structure of Daniel, chapter number 7, which he's apparently uncovered, first you must recognize that he uses the word for two times in each of three different verses. So we have to understand your form of biblical numerology to crack the code. Got it. Verses number 6, 17, and 23. And in order to figure out how he has arranged these verses for our understanding of the secret prophecy, you must line those verses up in a horizontal line. 
Ah, I see. So you need to take your Bible out and snip out the <laughs> the verses and then take those verses that have the word for in it and then line them up horizontally and then apparently you read across. Wow, who knew? And let the other verses follow where they may. Verse number six. Now, you can't see this, but he's put on his reading glasses for this next part. After this I beheld, and lo, another like a leopard, which had upon the back of it four wings of a fowl. The beast had also four heads, and dominion was given to it. Now, of course, we know from my previous programs that this refers to Barack Obama because he is... (laughs) Oh, man. (laughs) We just go deeper into the quicksand. The the prophetic quicksand is now up to our, like, neck. Oh, yeah, that's Barack Obama, Uh uh-huh. Our 44th president. And now verse number 17. Yeah, and the reason why we hop over to verse 17 because it has the word four in it. These great beasts, which are four, are four kings which shall arise out of the earth. Notice how Daniel had to kind of express this in an awkward fashion in order to get his two fours in. He could have just said, for example, these great beasts are four kings. But no, he had to get in two fours because he is tying these verses together. Ah, because he was talking about Barack Obama, so he had to use the word four twice by using weird, awkward sentence structure so they get two of them in there. Forty-four, you see. Very much on purpose. And verse 23, Thus he said, The fourth beast shall be the fourth kingdom upon earth which shall be diverse from all kingdoms, and shall devour the whole earth, and shall tread it down and break it in pieces. Notice again how Daniel used a rather awkward phrase in order to squeeze in two-fourths. He could have just said, The fourth kingdom upon earth shall be diverse from all kingdoms. But he had to get those two-fourths in in order to relate verse 23 with verse 17 and verse number 6. So now we've got the foundation of the unsealing of the sealed prophecies of Daniel because we're right at the end now. It was nice knowing you folks. In order to get all these verses to line up in a logical pattern so that verses 6, 17, and 23 are in a horizontal line, then verses 1 through 5 must appear on the upper left, just above verse number 6 followed by verses 7 through 11. And then we have to jump up here to the center for verses 12 through 16, just before verse 17. Then we have to skip this middle space and jump up the first 18 through 22 before verse 23. And then we conclude with verses 24 through 28. Exactly how Daniel intended you to know. Now, you might ask, how do we know Daniel did not want these verses rearranged in a chiasm? In other words, verses 12 through 16 could have been placed in reverse down here. 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17. And still have verses 6, 17, and 23 line up. The same way with all the verses on this side of the column. Verses 
18 through 28 could have been arranged this way, upside down, and still the three key verses could line up. Yeah. Boy, he's got a mind like a steel trap, don't you think? So Daniel has to verify that this is how he wants these verses rearranged. And how did Daniel verify that? He does this by having verses 24 through 28 relate to verses 7 through 11. In fact, we'll find that verse 24 follows verse 7 better than verse number 8. Let's take a closer look. Verse 7. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, and strong exceedingly, and it had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces, and stamped the rest with its feet. And it was diverse from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. Now the verse that follows does make sense. Verse number 8. I considered the horns... But verse number 24 actually follows better. And it had ten horns. If that's the case, then that really is a chiasm. I don't think he knows what that means. And the ten horns out of this kingdom are ten kings that shall arise. Notice that this follows. Verse 24 follows verse number 7. Okay, okay. <sighs> I can't go on anymore. I, I've hit... I've hit the you know third eagle of the apocalypse, co-prophet of the end times, prophetic wall. It's it just unbelievable to me that, number one, his family lets him do this. Um, number two, they don't seek professional help for him. Um, and uh, number three, that he really thinks that he's cracked the code now that will allow him to unlock, unseal the sealed prophecies of... <laughs> of the of the book of Daniel. It's oh man, it's breathtakingly bad. I got to take a quick break here and floss out my brain so that we can continue with the rest of the program today. If you would like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you could do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Click on the subscribe button or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk about, well, listen to a pastor talk about how his church is a community of unbelievers, which makes no sense, and then get to that Carl Truman piece. Don't want to miss it. Stay tuned. We will be right back. No itching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. Python's Flying Circus Church. Hello. I wish to register a complaint. Uh, we're closing for lunch. Never mind that, my lad. I wish to complain about the sermon that I purchased a day ago from this very boutique. Uh, yes. Uh, what, what's wrong with it? I'll tell you what's wrong with it, my lad. It's a dead sermon. That's what's wrong with it. No, not possible. You just preached it wrong. Look, matey. I know a dead sermon when I preach one, and I know that the sermon I preached yesterday was certainly dead. 
Jesus Christ wasn't mentioned once, not even in the footnotes. No, no, you just weren't charismatic enough. Remarkable sermon, beautiful imagery. The imagery don't enter into it. It's stone dead. No, 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 no. You're just not open-minded enough. All right, then. If it's not dead, then I should be able to preach the gospel. I read a portion of it. Ahem. And then the camp counselor told all of the woodland creatures to become more righteous so that they, too, could get to the place called heaven. You, you see what I mean? This is ridiculous. There. I found the gospel in the sermon. No, you didn't. That was you just writing the word gospel on the cover of the room temperature sermon. Well, I never. Yes, you did. I, I never, never did anything. This entire sermon fails to preach anything that's worth anything to anyone. Now, that's what I call a dead sermon. No, no, no. You haven't looked deep enough into yourself. You must be joking. Well, you're just being divisive, and you refuse to accept the message that's being presented. Um, Now, look. Now, look. Mate, I've definitely had enough of this. That sermon is definitely rotten. And when I purchased it not but a day ago, you assured me that it was Christ-centered, cross-focused, and filled to bursting with the gospel. Well, if you would just read the title... Read the title? What kind of title is this anyway? Super Spiritual Happy Fun Friends Adventure Camp Pack. Well, this particular sermon is designed to draw large audiences, and that's what you said you wanted. It has lovely imagery. Look, I took the liberty of examining this sermon after I preached it, and I discovered the only reason why I bought it in the first place was because it had been put into the wrong sleeve packet. Well, of course it's in the wrong package sleeve. If I hadn't put a less suspicious cover on the sermon, you'd have had people chasing you just so that they can hear you preach it. Chasing me down the street? Mate, listen, people wouldn't be chasing me to hear this rubbish if I was firing midgets out of cannons. It's bleeding demise. You didn't buy the midget cannon expansion pack? The sermon has passed on. The sermon is no more. It has ceased to be. It's expired and gone to me and its maker. It's a stiff. Bereft of life, it burns in hell. If you hadn't put it in the wrong package sleeve, I would be using it for Firestarter. The thought processes that brought it about are now history. It's off the twig. It's kicked the bucket. The bleeding choir invisible wouldn't listen to this sham. This is an ex-sermon. Uh, well, well, I, I'd better replace it then. Let's see. Uh, Christ-centered, uh, gospel, Jesus. Well, sorry, Squire. I've had a look around in the back of the shop and, uh, well... We're right out of whatever it is that you're looking for. I see. I see. I get the picture. I I got a sermon here from Rick Warren. Does it contain Jesus Christ and his atoning sacrifice? Well, no, not really. Well, that's hardly a replacement, is it? Look, if if, if you're really dead set on the whole Jesus thing, I suggest that you look up Pirate Christian Radio. All they do is talk about Jesus 24-7. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Pirate Christian Radio? Very well, I'll give them a try. Have you purchased your airline tickets for your summer getaway yet? If not, don't pay more for your airfare, hotel room, or rental car than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheapo Air is your one-stop shop for all of your travel needs. And we've got a special promo code for you to use at Cheapo Air to save an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap 
write down the promo code, then click on the web banner and book your travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase will go to support Pirate Christian Radio. That website address, again, is piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. And thank you for your support. Cowabunga. Mark your calendar now for April 25, 26, and 27, 2014. You see, it's not too soon to be making your plans, saving your pennies, and asking for work off April 25, 26, and 27 of 2014 for the 11th annual Branson Worldview Weekend. This past year, we had people from all over the country and actually from other countries join us in the beautiful rolling hills of Branson, Missouri. So if you're looking to attend the premiere Understanding the Times Biblical Worldview Weekend and join us April 25, 26, and 27 of 2014 for the Branson Worldview Weekend. It's for all ages. Children 11 and under are free. We also have a group rate and a family rate. The Worldview Weekends have been around since 1993. So we're one of the oldest Biblical Worldview conferences in America. So mark your calendar now for Branson, Missouri, April 25, 26, and 27, 2014. Warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to become supremely dissatisfied with your church, especially if your pastor uh, likes to do prophetic numerology and thinks that he can unseal things that are sealed up in prophecy. You get what I'm saying? Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith, this is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. And you can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. And when you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month. That's it, just $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. It's a great way to support us. Of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Moving along. There is nothing wrong with your television set. Do not attempt to adjust the picture. We are controlling transmission. We will control the horizontal. We will control the vertical. We can change the focus to a soft blur or sharpen it to crystal clarity. For the next hour, sit quietly and we will control all that you see and hear. You are about to participate in a great adventure. You are about to experience the awe and mystery which reaches from the inner mind to the outer limits. Yep, there we go. I thought that would be appropriate for this next segment. Now, what you're going to hear in in just a moment is um, a guy by the name of Tim Douglas um, describing his church as a community of unbelievers. See if any of this makes any biblical sense to you at all. Uh, Here's Tim Tim Douglas. I'm Tim Douglas from Katy, Texas. Our community... 
of faith is a community of mostly unbelievers. Okay, now, how can you have a community of faith that's comprised of mostly unbelievers? Um, that would be a community of unfaith. You, you see what I'm saying? Christians are believers, people who have faith and trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. Um, church, in fact, plain and simple, okay, those who do not believe, who do not have faith in Christ, they're not part of the Christian, quote, faith community at all. So how can you sit there and say, oh, our faith community is comprised of mostly non-believers? That's complete, utter nonsense. That's like saying, you know, the mosque down the street, that you know, they're comprised of mostly Christians and Jews, you know. Um, <laughs> that doesn't make any sense at all. At, at that point, the, the word mosque doesn't have any real meaning. And talking about a faith community, which, by the way, I find it fa- fascinating to use the word church. It's a faith community comprised of people who are unbelievers, which means they don't have faith. Well, this isn't a church then, is it? When we began our church less than two years ago, about 60... 60- yeah, no, it's not a church. 65% of our core group, so to speak, were non-believers. 65% of their core group at their church were non-believers. Then they're not part of the church. It's real simple. You are not part of the ecclesia. You're not part of the body of Christ. You're not part of the church if you are an unbeliever. But what they were interested in is that we had a vision to reach into the community to serve them in tangible ways, to show the love of God in tangible ways. So you wanted to serve them and show the love of God in tangible ways. Um, Are they hearing about the fact that they are sinners under the wrath of God in need of Christ's forgiveness and that Jesus bled and died on the cross um, for their sins and was raised again on the third day bodily from the grave for their justification? Have you called them to repent and believe the good news? Um. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, seriously, well, we got a bunch of, we 65% of our, quote, faith communities made up of non-believers. And the reason they like us is because, you know, we go out and we do, like, free labor projects for them, man. You know, like, like we mow their lawn, we paint their fences. They love it, man, because we're showing tangible, no, they're getting, they're getting free labor out of you guys. Some of those ways were uh, basic, like elderly who needed maintenance around their home that we could provide. Now, did those elderly folks before they died, did they hear about their crucified and risen Savior? So we had kids as young as five and people as old as 80 all together at an elder care home helping with leaf removal and plantings and things like that. Yeah, so basic yard work, replacing the preaching of the gospel. Got it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, no wonder, again, you know, the non-believers, this is real simple. I mean, you're, you're saving them hundreds, maybe thousands of dollars in free labor and, you know, and, and cleaning up their yards and stuff for them. Who wouldn't want that? And it was awesome because uh, it was living out the gospel of helping the poor. No, 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 no. See, again, this is a confusion of categories. Okay, when you hear somebody say we're living out the gospel, they have no clue what the word gospel means. Okay, there's one person, and I mean one person who, quote, lived out the gospel, and that's Jesus, okay? Because the go- the gospel, the good news, is all about what Jesus has done for us. And I go to the standard text here. 
If you want to know how to define the gospel, well, listen, there's no point in you and me speculating about what the word gospel means and when we're talking about, you know, the good news, right? The Apostle Paul writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, which, by the way, I had a great conversation with the uh, with Tom Baker, who does uh, uh, the radio show Law and Gospel on uh, KFUO, which is owned by the LCMS. And he, he has a great distinction that I think is worth you know noting here. Um, when we talk about the Bible, the Bible only has one author. That's God, the Holy Spirit. But the Bible itself also has many different writers. So here the author, the Holy Spirit, writing through the Apostle Paul, defines what the gospel is, okay? Here's what Paul says. Well, actually, God, the Holy Spirit says. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preach to you. Aha, so here it is. You Quick, down and dirty thumbnail sketch of what the gospel is. How do you define it? Real simple. You don't speculate. Okay. If somebody were to ask you, what is the gospel? You need to find a biblical passage that clearly, unambiguously, in just plain, simple language says this is what the gospel is. And that's what we have here in first Corinthians. Now I would remind you brothers of the gospel, the good news that I preached to you, which you received in which you stand and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word that I preached to you, unless of course you believed in vain. So here it is. You ready? Here's the gospel for I delivered to you as of first importance. What I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James, and then the, all the apostles, last of all, to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. So what's the gospel? Christ died for our sins, rose again on the third day. In Real simple, in its basic nutshell form. Okay, so who lived that out? Not me, not you. And not this guy from Katy, uh, Texas. No, you don't live out the gospel. Okay, the gospel was lived out by Jesus, and the gospel, the Evangelion, is a proclamation of what Jesus has done, N- not you going out and doing yard work for elderly people. Although that's a great way to love and serve your neighbor, that's not the gospel. We continue. Uh, the orphan, the widow, the infirmed, and it was done not by a whole bunch of churchy people. It's incredible to watch God work in the lives of other people when we're willing to simply love them like he would. Now, how do you know God was the one working through people who were just basically cleaning up yards? I mean, if that's the case, then I must come to the conclusion that God is at work and, you know, in the the guys who come out and, you know, trim the yards in, you know, of my neighbors and, you know, in our neighborhood, you know, there's God at work right there. Look, take a look. There's a guy with a lawnmower. Right? Look, there's a guy with a leaf blower. Oh, isn't it great to see how God is working? Yeah, I don't think so. And I'm amazed that people that do not claim a faith tradition or don't claim to follow Christ at this point in their life will do the acts of Christ along with people who are... Really, what passage says Jesus had a leaf blower and he did yard work? We're willing to do that on mission. Our body of people that gather every week, there's about 85 of us, since we began, we've seen, you know, 32 people come to say, I will follow Christ. What does that mean? Come to say, I will follow Christ. Did they repent of their sins and do they trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins? 
Remember, Jesus himself, Luke 24, says, Go and proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in my name to all nations, right? So you're saying, just, yeah, so we've got a whole bunch of people who've made a decision to follow Jesus. What does that mean? What's the cash value of that? And it, where in the Bible am I supposed to equate that to somebody being saved? 20 of those have, have been baptized publicly just at someone's house. You know, We're seeing lives being changed because of that. And many, many people being willing to ask questions. Uh, we have people that would self-identify uh, agnostic or even atheist. But as they hang out around people they would have at one time called religious, and they work side by side with them on projects like this, when they work side by side on, on Sunday morning, serving coffee together or greeting people together or even taking the offering. We have, we have atheists taking offerings at the church. And how is that a good thing again? They work together, and then they realize there is something more to this God concept than do, 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 don't, don't, don't. There's more to this God concept. Again, have you confronted them with their sin and rebellion against God and exposed them to what the Scripture says, that they are under the wrath of God and they need to repent and be forgiven? Is that what you're talking about? It doesn't sound like it to me. There is actual activity that interacts with other parts of humanity that will make a difference. And that... Yeah, making a difference is not what we were called to do. Jesus said, go and make disciples, not a difference. Big difference. I think that appeals to everyone. We... Yeah, I think you think you, you need to get back to what the Bible says and what Jesus told you to do. Make disciples, not make a difference. Want to make a difference. We're a church plant, so we don't have a lot of money. We don't advertise anywhere. Uh, it is the mouth-to-mouth invitation from one person to another. And our biggest inviters are people who are not yet believers. It's dumbfounding. It, it's, not, it's not in the books. It's nothing we planned. It's nothing we're doing except being there. We have... Yeah, maybe the reason why is because you've removed the offense of the cross and the gospel. Maybe that's the reason why unbelievers are so excited about sharing about this so-called faith community of unbelievers. Because then they can feel good about their you know, little service projects and stuff like that and feel like they're earning brownie points with God. But in reality, they're not because no amount of good works is going to be able to save them on the day of judgment. Instead, they need to repent and trust in Christ and the free forgiveness of sins offered by him. But I'm not hearing anything about that. Yeah, so again, weird. This is, by the way, found at the vergenetwork.org, vergenetwork.org. And the name of the thing is Community of Unbelievers, A Story. Yeah, and now I would just cite, if you think this is a great idea, um, why is it um, that you don't find anything at all like this at all in the entire book of Acts, You know, which is you know where we go from Christ's ascension and to how the gospel, the good news, spread into, you know, into all of the world, right? You know what the apostles would do? They'd go in and they would preach. They didn't you know, sit there and, you know, oh, come on, we're going to do your yard work for you and live out the gospel. No, they preached the gospel and called sinners to repentant faith and trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. And you know what happened? God converted them. And God added to their number daily those who were being saved. So here you've got a whole bunch of atheists who are excited to work together in community or whatever that means. But the cross sounds like it's missing, totally like gone. And they're they're willing to tell everybody those word of mouth things. So, yeah, well, they feel like, oh, we're doing good works. No, they're not, because without faith, it's impossible to please God. You don't have a faith community. You have an unbelief community. 
And there's a big difference between the two of them. And, you know, again, I don't understand what you mean when somebody says, oh, I've made a decision to be a Jesus follower. What exactly does that mean? And how does that line up with what the scripture says to repent and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins? I don't think those two phrases are synonymous. Do you? Moving along. From the Reformation21.org blog... Carl Truman writes, the name of the head, uh, the article is The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie. <clears throat> yeah, you'll notice that uh, Carl Truman it just has an amazing way of, well, writing just fantastic stuff. But he's taking issue with something said in Andy Stanley's recent book called Deep and Wide. In fact, what I'm going to do here during this segment, I'm going to play for you a portion of the audiobook. I've been working my way through Deep and Wide. And, oh man, I, how do I put this? There's so many things that need to be addressed in this thing. Have, what are the, oh, hang on, I'm trying to remember a phrase here. I, I think, okay. Psychologists talk about something called a neurotic bind. I think that's what it's called, but then again, I could be wrong. Um, and um, the idea behind it is, is that a neurotic bind is where you have so many things you have to do that your circuits overload and you can't do anything. <laughs> <laughs> so I, <laughs> while reading uh, Andy Stanley's book, Deep and Wide, I experienced a neurotic bite. It's like, there's so many things that need, I, uh, you, you get what I'm saying. Anyway, but Carl Truman has done a, done a fine service here by sticking his toe into the water to begin the critique. And, oh, there's so much that needs to be critiqued here. Um, but uh, here's what he writes. He says, for this month's column... I thought I would offer a few reflections on Andy Stanley's recent book, Deep and Wide, Creating Churches Unchurched People Love to Attend. And here's a classic passage which represents in miniature an entire universe of erroneous thinking. Now, rather than read it, what I'm going to do for you is I'm going to actually play uh, the audio from the, uh, from the audio book version of uh, Andy Stanley's book. And uh, so that you can hear uh, what it is that it says. And unfortunately, Andy Stanley did not read it, so it's not read by the author. But I think it's it's good enough and important enough that I should <clears throat> let you hear it. So here's the quote that uh, Carl Truman is going to take issue with. Here we go. People are far more interested in what works than what's true. I hate to burst your bubble, but virtually nobody in your church is on a truth quest including your spouse. They are on happiness quests. As long as you're dishing out truth with no here's the difference it will make tacked on the end, you will be perceived as irrelevant by most of the people in your church, student ministry, or home Bible study. You may be spot on theologically, like the teachers of the law in Jesus' day, but you will not be perceived as one who teaches with authority. Worse, nobody is going to want to listen to you. Now, that may be discouraging, especially the fact that you are one of the few who is actually on a quest for truth. And yes, it is unfortunate that people aren't more like you in that regard, but that's the way it is. It's pointless to resist. If you try, you will end up with a little congregation of truth seekers who consider themselves superior to all the other Christians in the community. But at the end of the day, you won't make an iota of a difference in this world. And your kids, more than likely your kids, are going to confuse your church with the church. 
And once they are out of your house, they probably won't visit the church house. Then one day they will show up in a church like mine and want to get baptized again because they won't be sure the first one took. And I'll be happy to pastor your kids. But I would rather you face the reality of the world we live in and adjust your sails. Culture is like the wind. You can't stop it. You shouldn't spit in it. But if, like a good sailor, you will adjust your sails, you can harness the winds of culture to take your audience where they need to go. If people are more interested in being happy, then play to that. Jesus did. So there's the uh, <clears throat> the relevant quote uh, quoted from the Carl Truman piece, uh, and that was the audio book version of Deep and Wide. But let me now read <clears throat> Carl Truman's critique. Truman writes, he says, Now, to be sure, as grateful as I am to the Reverend Stanley for the offer to pastor my children and providing me with fascinating insights into the philosophical convictions of my long-suffering wife, I cannot help but see this as a remarkably naive piece of muddled thinking. With so much promising material, where should one start the critique? Perhaps with the unintended irony of a man warning his readers about feeling superior while at the same time assuring them that he has better insight into the way their spouses and congregations think than they do. <clears throat> yeah, that's <clears throat> Or with the odd way in which he berates his audience for making the mistake of assuming that other people are just like them rather than realizing that they are actually all just like Andy Stanley. Sorry to, as you would put it, burst your bubble, Andy, but the people I know are not on a happiness quest. I suspect they are not that ambitious. They simply want to find a decent bottle of cognac so that they might temporarily dull the pain of existence with a little touch of old world class. At least I have always assumed that they are just like me. Uh, one might also look at the travesty of scriptural teaching it contains. The problem of the teachers of the law, for example, was not that they were spot on. It was that they were completely wrong. That is why Jesus spent such a lot of time berating them for their errors of interpretation. And as to Jesus playing to people's expectations of happiness, one wonders why he made such a play of the havoc which following him would reek on families and of the need to take up one's cross and of the expectation of persecution to come. As far as I know, not even Peter Tatchell has yet tried to argue that first century Palestine was full of sexual fetishists who found their happiness by being regularly subjected to acute suffering brought on by religious commitment. I will concede that Stanley is certainly right in his basic contention. People are not on a search for truth. The Apostle Paul articulated that well in Romans 1. Stanley is also correct that truth is irrelevant to people, or at least they think it is irrelevant to them. Compared to Paul, Stanley's statement on this issue is rather bland. Paul goes much further, declaring the truth, the message of the cross, to be intellectual foolishness to some and a moral offense to others. It is not, however, Stanley's blandness which is the real problem. It is the practical conclusion that he draws from this. For Paul... The offensiveness and irrelevance of the message of the cross demonstrate the fact that those who think in such ways are perishing. The problem is with them and with their cultures, not with the cross. For Stanley, by way of contrast, it is the culture which is to set the agenda and to which the church must thus conform or die. 
Stanley's pragmatism, in a manner analogous to the soft relativism of certain evangelical postmoderns, looks attractively plausible, yet this is only because it operates within the framework of the likely possibilities determined by the polite pieties and tasteful transgressions of modern Middle America. Safe, in other words, because Stanley assumes Middle America is pretty much like him and therefore unlikely to confront him or his church with anything too tasteless. After all, what's the worst that culture might throw at them? Homosexuality? That is, that is being rendered thoroughly respectable even as I write. Abortion? <clears throat> out of sight, out of mind. Nice, clean clinics. A powerful rhetoric built on claims about rape, incest, and victimhood, and euphemistic vocabulary of women's health, terminations, and planned parenthood help make child killing just one more private and merciful medical procedure. So far, Middle America. The final cause of personal felicity sanctifies all. But if Stanley had the imagination to set this pragmatism in Nazi Germany, or in a country where female circumcision is de rigueur, some place where middle-class American tastes and preferences do not apply, then the cost of such intellectual and moral laziness would immediately become apparent. If you cannot stop culture, you should not spit in it. What happens when the culture tells you that happiness comes about by gassing Jews or lacerating young girls' genitalia? That is somebody's culture. No point trying to resist it, for that would risk irrelevance, empty pews, and isolationist pharisaism. And we couldn't have that, could we? Of course, one can already hear the pat response of, oh, it could never happen here, or, but that stuff is obviously wrong. Touching in its innocence and predictable in its complacency, much muling would yet betray a shockingly shallow understanding of both human nature and history. No one in 1900 would have predicted that the most technologically and culturally advanced nation in Europe would elect a man like Hitler and be the center of previously unimaginable genocide. Interesting what national military defeat, adverse economic conditions, and concerted anti-Semitic propaganda can do to a nation, is it not? Still... Let's bring it closer to home while staying on the contemporary social margins. What if a pair of 20-something siblings or a parent, an adult child, decided that their happiness lies in a consensual incestuous relationship? Consensual incest is already being legally debated in the U.S., and if the history of sexual politics teaches us anything... It is that what is today considered an antisocial fetish is tomorrow not only a civil right, but also protected by hate speech legislation. And let us not forget that a current professor of bioethics at Princeton University sees nothing wrong in principle with bestiality, already incidentally being uh, euphemized as zoophilia or infanticide, and argues for both on grounds on which are consistent with culture and legal premises established years ago. In the field of human ethical behavior, one should never say it can never happen here, wherever you may be. And that is ultimately the saddest aspect of the Anley Stanleys of this world. It's not their patronizing attitude towards others. 
It's not their arrogant assumption that they represent the culture or that they have the right to tell the rest of us how we should think. It's not the sloppy way they bandy words like culture and even happiness around without ever offering a definition of what they think they mean. It is not their crass prioritization of raw numbers. It's not their complete lack of imagination regarding the moral possibilities of culture. Rather, it is the fact that What they confidently present as radical insights are really nothing but lazy, insipid, prosaic, predictable capitulations to the values of the spirit of the age. In short, they are simply dressing up their society's tastes as absolute truth, unimaginative, respectable, lazy, and lethal, the discreet charm of the bourgeoisie, is it not? All right, we're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you could do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or follow me on Twitter, my name there at pirate Christian. Quick break when we come back. My interview earlier today with Dr. James White regarding what Christians need to know about the Quran. Don't want to miss it. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Relevance Schmelevance. We preach Christ crucified for our sins. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... Listening to Byron Christian Radio. If everybody had a Have you purchased your airline tickets for your summer getaway yet? If not, don't pay more for your airfare, hotel room, or rental car than you need to. Long-time Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheapo Air is your one-stop shop for all of your travel needs. And we've got a special promo code for you to use at Cheapo Air to save an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap Write down the promo code, then click on the web banner and book your travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase will go to support Pirate Christian Radio. That website address, again, is piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. And thank you for your support. Cowabunga. Come in. What was I just doing, you might ask? Well, I just conquered the outer rim planet of Pico Pond with my trusty double barreled nuclear plasma cannon. Well, I just did in this video game. But how is it possible for someone like myself to play 13 hours straight and not get a headache? It's quite simple, really. It's because I wear gunners. When I'm rocking these babies, I'm unstoppable. They're not limited to just games, mind you. Oh no! 
I rock the spreadsheet, the PowerPoint, the word processor, and when that's all done, I hop my T-16 and fry me some toasters. If you want to get in on the action, then head over to piratechristianradio.com forward slash gunners. You gotta see it to believe it. Okay, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith. This is normally our sermon review spot, but from time to time I swap that out, and today is one of those times. Now, there's no music here. I don't have any James White update music. Although, I got to tell you, I was tempted to use this. Now, the reason <laughs> the reason for that is because James White is an avid cyclist and every time I think of cycling, I think of well, this music from the scene from The Wizard of Oz. Yeah, but I decided not to do that. <laughs> oh, and, sorry, I just had to put that. <laughs> that was yeah, kind of never mind. Anyway, what I had the opportunity earlier today to interview uh, Dr. James White regarding his latest book, which, by the way, is absolutely fantastic. If you've ever wanted, you know, an overview of what. Islam teaches and what the Quran says regarding Christianity, then you need to get this book. The name of the book is entitled What Christian What Every Christian Needs to Know About the Quran. It's again, I read it over the weekend. It's absolutely fantastic. Well done. And um it, it is a little bit difficult in the early parts because there's some vocabulary you gotta get into the mix and stuff like that. But once you get past that, uh Dr. White just does a fantastic job of showing you what the Quran says regarding the Trinity, regarding Jesus, uh, regarding uh, you know pr- so-called prophecies regarding uh, you know, uh, Muhammad in the Bible, and as well as a whole host of other things. And it's just really well done. If you've ever wanted to have a good conversation with uh, your Muslim neighbors or with uh, a coworker or a Muslim friend, and you're not quite sure how you know how do you build a bridge of conversation, well, I think this book actually does a great service to the body of Christ in providing those connecting points, especially where Islam and the Quran speaks regarding Christianity. And so this afternoon I had a a, a little over an hour long conversation with Dr. James White discussing his book. And what we're going to do today is we'll put a link up uh, at fightingforthefaith.com. If you'd like to click on that and get a copy of this book, you can download it on Kindle. You can get it. uh, You can order it as a paperback. And uh, it, it's this is one of those books that should be in every Christian's library, especially due to the fact that, well, Islam is one of these uh, is is one of these hot topics, and a religion that uh, Christians have been dealing with for well, you know, almost two centuries, and will continue to uh, have to have a good, ready apologetic to dis- and discussion 
uh, and for really for years and decades and generations to come because it's it's not going away anytime soon. So without any further ado, here is my interview earlier today with Dr. James White regarding his new book, What Every Christian Needs to Know About the Quran. Here we go. All right, on the line, I have Dr. James White, and I've asked him to come on the program today to discuss uh, his latest book, um, what every Christian should uh, needs to know about the Quran, and uh, quite a fascinating book. Uh, Dr. White, thanks for coming on uh, Fighting for the Faith. It's great to be with you. Okay, so this is your first time on Fighting for the Faith, and uh, you know, I thought for sure the first time I had you on it, we would be talking about something to do with uh, Reformed Baptist theology, but instead we're, we're having you on to talk about uh, the Quran, and uh, you've had an opportunity, in fact, many opportunities over the years to uh, debate with and dialogue with um, Muslims in uh, it, it, what at least two or three different continents. You've had these debates, and um, I find your your depth of knowledge and understanding of Islam to actually be very encouraging for me as a Christian because you you put together this resource in this book that we can go to. It's not a comprehensive look at Islam, but what you're really trying to do is help Christians understand the things that they need to know where the Quran addresses us as Christians. And uh, you also take the opportunity to uh, put some pretty decent, I mean, kind of killer apologetic arguments into the book itself uh, as a means of testing some of the claims regarding Islam. What got you into this in the first place? Well, you know, I really started studying Islam not because of 911 or anything like that. Um, I, I started getting into it because I was studying the persecuted church, and you can't study the persecuted church without studying Islam, unfortunately, today. And I started realizing that the Islamic apologists were using the same kinds of arguments that um, I'd been dealing with for many, many years, attacks upon the reliability of the New Testament, attacks upon the Trinity, uh, attacks upon church history and development of doctrine and things like that. And so I had my first debate with a Muslim as I was studying Islam in 2006, in May of 2006, with uh, Shabir Ali. I sort of started at the top. <laughs> Um, at, at uh, Biola University in, in May of 2006. And since then, I've had the opportunity of, of engaging him in a mosque in Toronto. Uh, I was uh, debating in the East London Mosque a week after the Benghazi attack uh, last year on the subject of whether Muhammad is prophesied in the Bible. And uh, have really, you know, I have a real love for the Muslim people. They have been given a, a, um, a false teaching. They, they've been given a false Jesus. Uh, they say they believe in Jesus, but uh, they they have been just given so much bad information, and trying to bridge the communication gap with them has been one of the primary uh, things that I've had to try to work at, because it is, it's not just the use of Arabic terminology in their theology, which is prevalent, of course, but uh, there is there's a lot of, of communication errors between Christians and Muslims. They're, that's based upon a number of things. When I ask Christians when I speak to a Christian audience, how many of you have read the Quran? I'll sometimes have one or two people that sort of, you know, once in a while a person will put their hand up. Yes, I've read all the Quran. But most of the time, somebody sticks their hand up and, and they're sort of only putting up halfway and they're mouthing the word parts and things like that. And I, if I were speaking to an Islamic group and asked how many of them have read the Bible, you'd have about the same type of percentage. Right. That means we are, we're, we're, we're talking right past each other. We are interpreting each other's scriptures out of ignorance. We're interpreting each other's words out of ignorance. And sadly, amongst evangelicals in the United States, there is really a willingness to believe 
absolutely the worst about all Muslims. I mean, you know, uh, we, we look at this uh, situation that just took place in, uh, in London, in Woolwich, and, and you see that man standing there with blood all over his hands, and you just, you just go, oh, my goodness, that the monsters have arrived. I mean, this is, this is horrific, and it is. Uh, it, 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 what, what was done there is just absolutely amazing. And yet you, you listen to the man speaking and he's, he's not insane. He's quoting from the Quran. He's, he's giving his argument. There is a stream. It is not the majority stream, but there is a stream of Islam that agrees with what he said and what he did. And yet at the same time, there are people on the other side that, that strongly condemn what he did and they have their theological arguments. And our tendency is to go, they're all just Muslims. And right. as you and I prove, uh, <laughs> just saying they're all just Christians doesn't really work real well because, uh, you know, we can have a little uh, a little uh, debate about certain things where we disagree, and then you throw the liberals in, and you and I are both in together arguing with them. And we hate when people broad brush us. Right. I mean, you and I were just at a conference, and it was mainly Baptists, and so that makes you a Baptist, right? Not really. And yet we do that to the Muslims constantly. We did it during the uh, Boston bombing when, uh, when news came out that uh, the older brother who had died um, had been deeply influenced by Zaid Muhammad, a, a Muslim preacher from Sydney. Uh, all, the, all the major outlets are starting to you know, quote stuff from what this guy said and all the rest of the stuff. Well, I got in touch with a Muslim friend in Sydney and said, who is this guy? And I find out, and he can direct me to press releases and the whole nine yards that I never heard discussed on any of the mainstream media outlets, that this guy had been precluded from preaching in any of the mosques in Sydney. Uh, the Sydney Muslims had warned about him, and you could find videos from him online saying that Islam was not being preached in any of the mosques in Sydney. Now, can you imagine if someone went to your church, and they only went for a while, and then you kicked him out and said, you don't represent us, you're unorthodox, you're not allowed to speak here. He puts up videos about how the gospel is not being preached in your church, and then he goes out and does something wacky, and you get blamed for it. Right. Um, you know, I, I can understand that there's, you know, there's a lot of frustration uh, on their part. So I did something last week on my, on my program that I think shocked a lot of people. I played one of the videos that was immediately posted by the Muslim Debate Initiative decrying what happened in Woolwich on uh -huh. my program. Right. Then I interacted with it. I interacted with, you know, and said, guys, this is what we need to hear from you. But I did that. And so I'm, you know, I've, I've started to get to know these guys. They don't know what to do with me. They really, really do not know, know what to do with me. I know I'm talking a lot, and, and you could actually get, get, get a cup of coffee if you'd like. It'd be okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll just turn it over to you. No problem. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> But they don't know what to do with me. They don't know what to do with a Christian who will stand in a debate and preach to them the lordship of Christ. You cannot be neutral about him. He's not merely a prophet. But at the same time, I've read their Hadith. I've read the Quran numerous times. I, I do everything I can to accurately represent them, even when I have to disagree with them. Uh -huh. And they just don't know what to do with someone uh, who does that because they're so accustomed to people just doing that, ah, Muhammad is a pedophile, you're all a bunch of cultists type thing, and, and not making the differentiations to recognize there's all sorts of different kinds of Muslims out there. Right. Now, one of the things I found interesting in your book is you, you actually explained very well the historical context of Muhammad's uh, marriage to, what was her name, Aisha? Aisha. Yeah, mm -hmm. and um, and and put it in its proper perspective, and you don't engage in kind of the broad brush 
um, you know, but I don't even want I, I want to almost say that what, we're, what we get a lot of times nowadays is propaganda um, regarding Islam. And you you are very careful in laying out uh, historically the context of this, what you know, what Muslim scholars say regarding that. And and so what I find about your book to be at, at least I would say excellent is uh, that you approach it as somebody who has uh, a desire for rightly understanding Islam and speaking the truth about it, while at the same time you don't pull any punches and um, you challenge many of the major claims regarding it. So it's as if truth is the thing that is trumping everything else. And so that kind of puts you in an awkward position because in today's soundbite media and, you know, all the different, uh, you know, really politically polarized news outlets, uh, no one's really playing, uh, you know, putting, you know, Muslims on television and playing soundbites from people who are openly critical of many of the things done in the name of Islam. And, uh, and so I, I found your book to be actually breathtaking uh, in, in a positive way in uh, in uh, in how you're handling the topic. Well, you know, the funny thing is that I've, I've, I just did a, uh, a radio interview in uh, in Detroit just a few moments ago, um, and I, I've been doing a lot of them recently. And, and that, that's great. That's exciting. But I can tell that on a number of them I disappointed the interviewer who wanted me to come on uh, with flamethrowers uh, set on maximum uh, and and just you know toast everything in in the in the studio, and I I can't do that. Right. I have to. I, I keep saying in debate, look guys, you have got to use the same standards in attacking my New Testament that you use in defending the Quran, and you're not. You're quoting Bart Ehrman against me, but you would never allow Bart Ehrman's worldview to be used in criticizing the Quran. You're using different standards. Your own Quran says not to do it. You've got to stop. Well, if I'm going to say it to other people, well, I've got to do it myself. And so there are certain arguments that unfortunately are extremely popular amongst people against Islam that I simply cannot use because I recognize that I would be engaging in an inconsistent approach and I don't think that that's the way to to do it. And right. I, you know, I have to be consistent. Well, and you know, when we have our um, you know political polemics, and not political, but theological polemics within Christianity, um, it, it wouldn't help if if I were to say, "Hey, listen, all you credo Baptists out there, uh, you believe X, Y, and Z, and you don't believe anything of the sort." We recognize that that's a straw man argument, but uh, it, it sounds to me like what you're saying is a lot of people haven't taken the time to understand Islam. And as a result of it, their theological apologetics against Islam are based on refuting straw men rather than what Islam really teaches and what the Quran really says. Is that one of the reasons why you put this book together? Well, partly. I mean, that's really been coming from the fact that um, I've started doing something in, in my debates with Muslims. I've, I've started to try to get to know the people that I'm debating. Mm-hmm. That's, that not, not, that's not only something you can really necessarily do. I don't think it's absolutely necessary for there to be a good debate, but boy, I, for example, I just did two debates in Dublin, Ireland with Adnan Rashid. I'll be debating him again and Yusuf Ismail in Johannesburg in October in South Africa. And um, we had lunch between the two debates. The first was at uh, University College Dublin, and then the next night was at Trinity College Dublin, which just to get the debate at Trinity College Dublin was an incredible, uh, incredible thing in and of itself. But 
Um, the second debate I thought was much better than the first simply because we had taken the time to get to know each other, to sit down, um, to, you know, I was able to express to him, you know, Adnan, this is why I do what I do. He was able to talk to me about why he does what he does. I have an invitation from him to eat with his family the next time I'm in London, which I will take him up on. Um, to, to get to know these individuals as human beings and then to not expect him to compromise, and I'm not going to compromise, but we can show respect for one another. And the dialogue becomes became literally much more pointed, not in the sense of angry, but we could get past a lot of things because it's like, look, Adnan, you know what I believe about this. And, and you could really get down to the nitty-gritty rather than dealing with all the stuff that's normally used to sort of diffuse points and, and keep debates from being overly focused. And so, uh, really, I'm just trying to be consistent in going, I need to recognize that there are different Muslims. They have different perspectives. Mm -hmm. There's different understandings. Um, they need to understand that it's very confusing for us to look their direction and try to figure out where they're all coming from. But you know what? I have more than one Muslim that contacts me and goes, okay, um, I'll, I'll use this as an example. Them Lutherans and you Baptists, what's going on? You know, because they don't know. I mean, they look at us and they go, what, what's the differences? What, how would they understand this? How would you understand this? And, you know, they may pick up a book on denominations or something, but even that's not necessarily going to really give them this kind of information. So, again, it's a two-way street. They have difficulty seeing where all the differences between us are, and many Muslims think the Pope speaks for me, and he does not. Um, but in the same way, we see, you know, some some wild-eyed, fiery preacher, uh, some imam over there, and figure that every, that our, our Muslim neighbor uh, happens to agree with what that guy is saying, and that's not the case. Right. Uh, and part of it goes back, if I can take us back to the book, part of that goes back to the fact the Quran is is not like the New Testament, or the Bible as a whole, in so many ways. And it doesn't function the same way in the life of, of the average Muslim, the way that it functions for us. And uh, that was one of the things that I really I did get into in, in the text of the book. Yeah, no, actually you do a very good job of kind of explaining that out. Now, what, you, you, for our listeners here, so that, uh, you know, I want to bring them up to speed and maybe, you know, whet their appetite so they can pick up your book, which I really think they ought to do, when we talk about the Quran um, and you know what is considered authoritative uh, within Islam, what is the Hadith and what is the Quran and, and as far as authority and how do they relate to one another? Well, you know, I I told you when you said you were going to look at the book, I said make sure to read the footnotes, uh, which are actually endnotes, because uh, almost any of my books, there's a couple this isn't true, but almost any of my books. If you don't read the endnotes, you've gotten cheated, uh, because that's where so much of the information is. Yep. And the reason the endnotes are in such small font was uh, Bethany House was trying to keep that thing under 320 pages. And so <laughs> I was quoting large blocks of text from the Hadith. Uh, they, they sort of squished it down, and I can barely read the stuff. But I provided that for the obvious reason that for most Christians, access to the Hadith is next to impossible. What is the Hadith? The, the Hadith, the, the Ahadith, the plural, are the sayings, actions of Muhammad and his companions that begin to be collected 50 to 100 years after Muhammad. Uh, the main collections come together about 200, 250 years after Muhammad. And the Hadith literature as a whole has become in Sunni orthodoxy. And the Sunni have a different, basically different set of Hadith 
than the uh, than the Shia have, and there's a vast difference between their their hadith collections. It's very very interesting. But the Sunni hadith becomes the context in which the Quran is interpreted. Okay. It becomes the lens through which the Quran is interpreted. And part of the reason for this is that only portions of the Quran do we have any real idea from the text itself as to what its background was. And even when we think today that we know what the background of a portion of Surah 2 or Surah 6 or whatever it might be is, the primary reason we think we know that is from the Hadith. The Hadith says this is the background of this text. The problem is um, I've read the two largest, uh, most authoritative collections of Hadith, Sahih al-Bukhari and Sahih Muslim, that's nine volumes Arabic-English, eight volumes Arabic-English in between the two of them, plus the Mawada of Malik, which is an even earlier uh, collection. And I can tell you that there are times when the Hadith will say the background of such and such a section is this, and then a few pages later, uh, it's a different background. Huh. So you, you, it's not even consistent at that particular point. But that literature really becomes the interpretive lens far more, far more, than any patristic writings could ever be for the New Testament. The Hadith is the lens through which Sunni Muslims read the Quran. And in fact, uh, I would say it's not just an interpretive grid. It, it is uh, the imams will probably spend more time in the, the khutbah on, on Friday, the sermon, uh, speaking about what Muhammad said or did in the Hadith than they ever would um, looking at the Quran. The Quran functions more as a magical talisman. Uh, it, it really, years ago, I, I, I did a, a video. Um, we were doing live translation into Farsi for uh, beaming these into uh, Iran. And I did a 30-minute a video on uh, Surah Al-Iqlas, Surah 112, which is, as far as close to a creedal statement as you can get in, in the Quran. It's only four ayah, four, four verses long. And so I got done doing this, this video on it, and the, the guys come up to me who are all former Muslims. They're primarily former Shiite Muslims. And they come up to me and say, you know, the imams never do what you just did. Because I exegeted the text. I put it in the context. I, I read it straight through. I uh -huh. looked at the language, et cetera, et cetera. They go, the imams just never do what you just did. That was, they were fascinated that, that, that a Christian did that, but that's not what the imams did. Huh. And so it, it does function. Now, now, obviously, there are Western Muslims who are going to bring our kind of thinking and, and stuff to the task and are, are going to push that direction. But that's, that's, that's unusual. For the majority of Muslims in the world, that's not really not how you handle uh, the text of the Quran. The text of the Quran becomes mediated in a sort of moral sense through the Hadith, which becomes the interpretive grid. And then you've got your different uh, jurisprudence schools. They're going to emphasize this Hadith over that Hadith, and, and that's how you get the differences that exist amongst the Sunni Muslims as well. Interesting. So I think that's one of the reasons why we as Christians have a difficult time really understanding, you know, what Islam teaches, because uh, we would think that, you know, kind of one-to-one, -one, the, the Quran is to Muslims as the Bible is to Christians. But you're saying that that's really not the case at all. Um, and yeah, yet, no. In fact, functionally, uh, the, the Hadith are, are, is a little bit more okay. of, of a direct parallel as, as far as its function is concerned. 
uh, in providing guidance and direction and the interpretive grid through which the Quran itself is viewed. But remember, from the Islamic perspective, the Quran is the very is uncreated. It's the very words of Allah. Right. And, and so, so even from an inspirational perspective, um, one of the one of the reasons that that in-depth exegesis is not one of the primary practices, though in-depth exegesis of Hadith is, is because, you know, we ask the question, uh, what was what. what what was Paul's? What was Paul re- really responding to when he writes the churches of Galatia? Mm-hmm. And what's the background? When we look at those churches and we look at Paul's situation and we look at the language, and wow, we notice that in Galatians he's skipping verbs right and left, and I mean he's just really going at it. And you know, in comparison to Ephesians or Romans, which is very different as far as style goes, and and we look at all that kind of stuff. All of that is irrelevant to the interpretation of the Quran because. All Muhammad does is he receives these revelations from Allah, well, actually from the angel Jibreel, and he mediates them on. Right. So, so what he understands is irrelevant. Muhammad has nothing to do with the Quran from an orthodox Sunni perspective. It does not represent him, what he understood, what his knowledge was, completely irrelevant. So you can't ask questions like, did Muhammad understand the doctrine of the Trinity? Because to the Orthodox Sunni perspective, it doesn't matter. Right. Because that's not reflected in the Quran anyway. Right. And and you point out the fact in the book that uh, according to Muslim belief, um, the Quran has existed, you know, f- for eternity, and that there's a copy of it apparently, you know, in Arabic, uh, an eternal copy of it in the heavens, and that right. Allah. It, the, the the constant term you you know you bring out is that God Allah sent this down sent you know sent down this uh, this revelation, um, so it, it's it's kind of immaterial. What you're saying is is because of that, um, it's immaterial as to what uh, Muhammad believed or thought regarding the Quran because it's Allah just sending this this eternal word down to us. Right. We cannot exegete it and ask many of the questions that that you and I would ask of the authors of Scripture, as to what their context was and, and why they were addressing it in this way. But that's irrelevant from the Islamic perspective. And that makes a huge, huge difference. Now, they can ask those questions of the Hadith. Right. Uh, but they can't ask those questions of the Quran. And it, it really has, I would say, in my opinion, and, and I'm not an expert, I'm a student of these things. I mean, if I only started studying this stuff in 2005, there's still much more to be learned. But I, I, I certainly try to be a... Uh, a good student. Uh, in in my opinion, it has really uh, stultified the uh, the the exegesis of the Quran that that orthodox view of it in that way. Um, and yet, you see in the exegesis of the Hadith much more rich uh, working of interpretation and different schools of thought and things like that, which you just can't have with the Quran because you can't ask those questions of it. And that is one of the major differences in uh, how we handle uh, our texts and how they handle theirs. Right. And in fact, you kind of bring this out, is, is that some questions are so far out of bounds regarding th- things you can ask of the Quran that uh, that it makes me wonder, the way you talk about the, what the concept of shirk, that uh, asking certain questions would put you automatically, according to the Quran, in the camp of the unbeliever or, or somebody who's who, who is disbelieving and, and strayed from the path, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, a, a kafir is an unbeliever. Shirk specifically is the the commission of the sin of idolatry, association of someone or something with 
with a law, but you're exactly right, and you do see this. You you see this in if if you have a, a, a means of even accessing inter-Islamic dialogues, you will hear um, that uh, that phraseology of of uh, well, that, you're a kafir, you're a, you're an unbeliever being thrown about. Even though Muhammad warned against doing that uh, in the in the hadith, he warned against a lot of things. So uh, at least in the hadith that have come down to us, whether they actually represent. Anything that Muhammad ever said. I mean, obviously, as I read the Hadith, um, I had alarm bells going off constantly about, wow, that sounds like something that came along a whole lot later because, it, you know, it's, it's directly concerned about something that was going on years and years after Muhammad and, and all that kind of stuff. And, and uh, in Western uh, scholarship, you will have that kind of criticism. But at Al-Azhar University in, uh, in Cairo, um, you, you, you question these types of things, and, it, and it, it, it could go very badly for you, let's put it that way. Right, yeah. It, it, it's as if this, the system itself is, is kind of the – even the internal messages that are within the Quran, it's, it's submit, this is how it is, this is sent down from Allah, and, you know, don't you – know, it, it's set up in such a way that certain questions just can't be asked without you being charged with uh, something terrible. Yeah, no question about it. I mean, the the ultimate authority of the Quran is central to its message, uh, even you know from the very beginning. Uh, it is important to recognize from from the Islamic perspective, the Quran was all sent down in one night. It's called Laylat al Qadr, the Night of Power. Uh, it's either the twenty first, twenty third, twenty fifth, twenty seventh, or twenty ninth day of Ramadan. Okay. Um, why that is, I don't know, but that's 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 how it is. And on Laylat al-Qadr, the, the night of power, the entire Quran was given to the angel Jibril. Then, over the next 22 years, the angel Jibril uh, revealed it to Muhammad piecemeal as it had relevance to Muhammad's experience at that particular point in time. Interestingly enough, when he receives the very first portion of, of the Quran, um, he wants to throw himself off of a cliff. Uh, because he thinks he has been uh, inhabited by jinn, mm-hmm. and he doesn't he doesn't want this. And um, very very different response to an encounter with the divine than you re- than you find in scripture. Right. Uh, yeah. In fact, very very different. Which which I think is is fascinating. But and, and then when you you look at uh, the the author of the Quran and what he knew, which again you can't really ask these questions from the Islamic perspective, but from our perspective very wide vistas of important information come forth when you actually ask the question of what you really can discover if you just ask the question, what did the author of the Quran really understand? What was his context? Uh, it, it becomes very, very plain that you have a, a 7th century Arabian man who has only an oral familiarity with the Old and New Testaments, and primarily the Old, uh, what he thinks is in the New Testament is actually from stories, much of which actually comes from the apocryphal Gospels. Yep. And these stories end up in the text of the Quran as if the people of the Gospel believe that these are a part of the Injil, the Gospel itself. The author has absolutely no ability to discern different sources, whether it's non-canonical Jewish stories get mixed in with biblical stories, just as non-canonical Christian stories get mixed in with canonical Christian stories. Um, no discernment shown whatsoever, um, and that to me obviously says a lot 
but for the average Muslim, utterly unaware of that. And most Christians utterly unaware of what the non-canonical Gospels said or anything like that. So very rarely comes up in conversation, unfortunately. Right. It's clear that the author of the Quran um, didn't understand the, uh, the Christian doctrine of the Trinity, um, and uh, and then when you get into stories of Jesus, I mean, we got stuff from the infancy narratives, uh, you know, from you know the what the fourth and fifth century that have somehow crept in as uh, part of the story of Jesus, and and yet none of that's tied to the New Testament and the eyewitness testimony that we have of the apostles, and and you point out over and again that uh, the uh, the author of the Quran, if it's really truly Allah is sending a corrective to Christians and calling them to repent of their polytheism and false belief. But, the, the, uh, uh, you know, if it's Allah, then uh, Allah doesn't understand what Christians believe and are basically calling us to repent of something we never believed in. <laughs> well, you know, I, what I've often said to people is, uh, look, whether the Trinity is true or not, leave that to the side for a moment. In 632, when... Uh, Muhammad dies, Allah knew what the doctrine of the Trinity was. I mean, this is well after all the Christological controversies, etc., etc. God knew what the Trinity was in 632, so if he wanted to identify it as excess, as the the, the Quran does in Surahs 4 and 5, and say, oh, oh, people of the book, do not commit excess in religion, do not say anything but what is true of Allah in Surah 4, 171. If if he wants to refute the the Trinity, then it's not going to be all that difficult to do. He's, he's going to be able to do so accurately, but the fact is he does not. And as a result, amazingly, most Muslims, even to this day, will question um, our definition of the doctrine of the Trinity because it does not match what the Quran has said to them all along. Right. And that's a major problem. That, that is a huge barrier in seeking to communicate with Muslims because so often they are just they, are, they have been so often taught that we literally believe that, that Jesus is the Son of God in a literal sense, that God had a wife and had a kid, yep. um, that when you actually explain to them, no, that's not the case at all. The Son has eternally been the Son of God. They just look at us like, oh, come on, you're just, you're just trying, to, you're trying to, to pull my leg. And it's, um, it's a huge barrier to try to get over. There's no question about it. Okay, so they, they believe what the Quran is telling them. They believe it's from Allah, and then you come along and say, listen— I can document for you from the New Testament as well as the ancient church fathers. Here's what the doctrine of the Trinity is, and they're going to look at you screwy and go, come on, you're hiding something from me, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they will, and, and it doesn't matter what you show them, because, look, the ultimate, the ultimate authority, bar none, period, end of discussion for the Muslim, is the Quran. It is the eternal word of Allah. We've seen what happens. Uh, when word gets out that someone has burned pages of the Quran or flushed pa- flushed the Quran down the toilet or whatever else it might be, yeah. you have people stampeding in the streets. And so trying to get someone to critically analyze that text and not respond in that way, um, wow, that is extremely, extremely challenging. And, uh, well, any any apologetic conversation with anybody is extremely challenging, I suppose, and, and that's the case there. Right. So now, one of the one of the major hurdles. I mean, I, I the first time I had to read the Quran was actually uh, when I was at uh, Christ College, Irvine, Concordia University. Now, 
And I, I actually uh, took a comparative religion course uh, looking at uh, Islam, and, and we were required to read the Quran. And one of the things I found just dauntingly difficult, especially you know, uh, for somebody whose mind has a tendency to wander if, it, if a text gets just a little bit too cumbersome, is that the Quran doesn't read linearly. I, it's like it, it's like playing hopscotch on the moon. You're like all over the place. Help us understand what it is if somebody wants to actually take the time to read the Quran, what it is they're going to find there, and how could they piece it together in a way that kind of fits with our Western way of thinking and as far as the linear chronology and things like that? Well, whatever you do, if you're going to read the Quran, and, and the Quran's only about 57% the size of the New Testament, so it's not all that long to do, uh, though people sometimes don't persevere in it because they're not figuring out what it's saying anyways, and so it's very difficult to get through. But if you're going to read the Quran, whatever you do, do not read it straight through. Do not start with Surah Al-Fatiha, the seven-verse seven opening prayer, then Surah Al-Baqarah, Surah Al-Kal, because... The, the arrangement of the, of the Quran, and no one really knows why this is. I mean, there are some Muslims who will tell you, well, that's the way Allah wanted it. But uh, it's ordered from Surah 2 all the way to Surah 114 in order of length. So Surah 2 is the longest, Surah, two is a little bit, Surah 3 is a little bit shorter, Surah 4 is a little bit shorter than that. It's not perfectly consistent. There's actually a little bit of variation there, but it's pretty much based upon how long the thing is. And what that means is you're jumping back and forth between the two major periods of Muhammad's life. Uh, the first period, 610 to 622, he's a minority prophet in Mecca. He is persecuted. Uh, there is stories in the Hadith about how he was bowed down in prayer and some of his enemies came along and, and dumped camel guts, camel intestines on his back. And he just stayed in that position until his little daughter Fatima came along and pulled the uh, camel guts off of his back. Of course, the Hadith then goes on to narrate the various ways in which these people died later on, too. So that's, I find that rather interesting. But uh, anyway, uh, he's, he's persecuted. His followers are persecuted. And then in 622, you have the Hijra, which is the beginning of the Islamic calendar. And this is when Muhammad goes to a little city called Yathrib. It's renamed Medina, the city of the prophet. And now... Over the next couple of years, he becomes the, the leader of this entire city, and then he's the leader of the, of the armies, in essence. The, uh, the Meccans uh, are trying to come down, and they, they besiege the city, and there's battles, and you've got the Battle of Uhud, and the Battle of the Trench, and the Battle of Badr, and, and uh, these become the background of some of the sections of the Quran, though, again, there's disagreement as to exactly what's what. And so if you read straight through then you're bouncing back and forth between a period when Muhammad is a minority prophet preaching against polytheism and the period when he is now the head of the armies and preaching about jihad. And so it just makes no sense. So in the book, as you notice, there's a, a, a chart. Unfortunately, in the typesetting process, it ended up being split between two pages, but uh, there is a chart uh, that um, gives the best chronological order we can figure out for the Quran. And so if you read the Quran in the order in which the surahs are laid out in that chart, then at least you'll have some idea of the flow of what is really going on. And then there are certain um, editions of the Quran that are available that will give you footnotes, uh, it will give you some of the background information as 
that particular author understands it anyways, mm-hmm. that can be somewhat helpful, you know, sort of like a study Bible version in essence, just not quite as, uh, as full, uh, but that would be available as well. Okay, good. Okay, now in your in your book, you cover a kind of a, a pretty good swath of uh, information. Again, not picking – this isn't a general overview of the Quran that you're giving us. What you're doing is you uh, try to give us an introduction to the Quran so we at least understand enough of the backstory and the foundation of it. And then you launch into – um, you know, talking about how um, how the Quran addresses the doctrine of the Trinity, Jesus, the cross, uh, their view of salvation, um, and and on and on, you know. And so you you got like a, eleven different chapters that you're you're dealing with here, and you even talk about the Quran and the transmission of the text, which I think is a fascinating study in and of itself, considering the fact that you've spent a lot of time. Uh, studying and understand how the New Testament has been transmitted and come down to us. And uh, you're kind of nerdy in the sense that uh, you're you're one of these guys who, while on vacation, if there's a, a little fragment, uh, you know, <laughs> you'll, you'll go see it. <laughs> you know, how would you know that? I, I <laughs> yeah, I, I saw something you did in Montana, <laughs> but uh, right. but uh, and so did you just say that I'm nerdy? Yeah, just the same way I'm oh, okay. yeah, right. it, You know that that you are. I oh, mean, yeah. you know how many? We both have the exact. We both have the exact same uh, uh, Oakley bag, so we are definitely nerdy. <laughs> right. And by the way, by the way, I, I want I write right here on on your own program. I I want to say that I want to send you my Oakley bag. <laughs> you know, it's I'm not like... serious. I'm absolutely serious. It is. It's sitting in the corner. It is. It is so. Far better shape, in such a far better shape than yours. That I, <laughs> I just feel that it's the necessary act of a Christian brother to send you my Oakley bag because uh, yours looks like it's going to explode at any moment. Yeah, so I, I, mine is well worn and uh, and it, it's literally I, I, at the end of its life. So, well, brother, I I want to I want to to bless you. So please make sure to send me your address because I want to send you that Oakley bag because you obviously like the bag. It's a nice bag. But I have other bags, and uh, so uh, so I I just have to. It, it, I just felt so bad that I almost talked to your wife and said I need to I need to that <laughs> I get your address and I and I and I didn't, but I need to do that. So I see you've been influenced by Islam to the point now where you're giving out alms. I got it. Okay. I am giving. <laughs> that is one of the one of the five pillars. That's uh, right. But, uh, <laughs> oh man. But I. And I've said la ilaha illallah wa Muhammad Rasulullah, so I've, I've said the shahada in the proper form and everything, but uh, that still does not make me a Muslim. No, it doesn't. I think you have to you have to say it like in front of you know Muslim witnesses with the idea. You, you have to say it in front of witnesses, and there are seven categories of things that go along with it to make it a true shahada, which obviously I could not possibly have because. I don't uh, believe those things, including the prophet of Muhammad. So, yeah, that's that's true. Right. So, let's come back to your book a little bit here. I th- I think this is You're talking about my book. I was so <laughs> I want I want to circle back to your book because I really want people to get this. I I, I think it's a fascinating book. I think it's. Uh, personally, I think that to every Christian university that calls itself a Christian university that offers any courses regarding, you know, regarding Christians and their understanding and our understanding of the Quran and how to interact with Muslims, this should be mandatory reading. This should be a, like a mandatory textbook 
for all of those classes because I mean it's just that well done. Again, the uh, the vocabulary takes a little bit of getting used to because you you take sure. great pains to you know to keep the of uh, the vocabulary. I I felt like while I was you know reading the book, especially in the uh, the the first few chapters, it, it was like, you know, reading out of, uh, you know, the uh, Thousand and One Arabian Nights or kind of thing. like it is. It is a, there's a cultural hurdle that you have to get over. Yep. And that is, is that, you know, not only is the vocabulary different, but they have almost a, an Eastern uh, mindset, whereas we're very Western in our mindset. And we don't appreciate those major differences. There's certain things that, that are so important to the way. We, uh, you know, how we come to understand things that are totally different the way they are brought to understand things. And that comes out in the language, the repetition, the stories they tell. And it, it, it makes it a, a little bit more daunting because I think they're a little bit more patient in the way they teach. We want to get right to the point, but they don't necessarily do that. Yeah, it is. Uh, you can really tell when you're talking to a westernized Muslim or a Muslim from another country. Um, there's a huge difference, and, and I will I will confess it is I, I may know that, but it doesn't necessarily mean that I'm overly successful at, at making that transition in my own mind. Because I, I remember the first debate I did with the Muslim. I had not started studying Islam yet. I, it was 1999. I was defending my book on the Trinity, the Forgotten Trinity. I did a debate with a fellow by the name of Hamza Abdul Malik on Long Island, and at the end there were all these um, uh, people standing in line to ask questions, and the questions lasted forever. And the audience questions of that debate are still some of the most educational that I have. And I, when I do my presentation on Islam, or one of my many presentations on Islam, I will frequently quote or, or play some of those audience questions, and especially this one from this fellow, clearly not from the United States, clearly born and raised somewhere other than, than these shores, not in a Western society. And he gets up there, and in, in a very thick accent, uh, asks me about the fig tree, the fig tree, which is the fig tree. Right. And he says, um, you know, why did Jesus curse the fig tree? Uh, didn't he know, I mean, Jesus didn't know that it wasn't the time for figs. And if he was God, then he could have just made figs come forth. And we don't think God ever gets hungry, but you think, you Christians, you think God gets hungry. So what is going on here? Now, you and I look at that, and we the first thought across, I, what I do is I love to watch my audiences when he's making his argument. I actually turn around and I watch the audience. And you'll see certain people in the audience, they start to giggle, and there's some smiles and some rolling eyes like, you've got to be kidding me. Really? This is, this is an argument against the deity of Christ is the cursing of the fig tree? I mean, really? But then when it's over with, I'll say, you know, I understand why you look at that and go, man, the Jehovah's Witnesses I talked to last week are a lot better than that. They're much more challenging. Yeah, they're from the West. And so they're going to use arguments that we, from the West, are going to you know, consider to be significantly more challenging. Right. But from his perspective, that's actually a Quranic argument. Mm -hmm. From his perspective, that's a, that's, a, that's a slam dunk. And just laughing at it isn't the same thing as answering it. So trying to communicate to someone like that who doesn't know anything about the text, they've not read anything before the fig tree, and they've not read anything after the fig tree, uh, but they've heard this story uh, to try to explain what the fig tree represented and what Jesus was doing in the cursing of the fig tree and the, the symbolism of the people of Israel. They look like they have fruit, but they did not. And he's going into the temple, and this is where all this religious, you know, uh, shallow religious charlatanism is and all the rest of the stuff. 
immediately they start looking at you like, uh, well, I don't know. It sounds pretty shady to me. I'm not really sure you're giving me the, right, the stuff here. It is very, very difficult. It requires the, again, the work of the Spirit of God to get past that kind of, uh, that kind of, uh, of barrier. And there are a lot of barriers there. There really are. It's, it's very challenging. Yeah. And in fact, you take great pains at, when you're quoting the Quran in your book. You actually engage in a little bit of uh, exegesis and help us understand, you know, because I'll, I'll be I'll be honest. I mean, several times in while I was reading the book, you would you know put a, a, a passage up from the Quran, and I'd read it and go, "What's the problem?" <laughs> you know, <laughs> and it's not until I get to your commentary where you exegete the Quran and and, and help me understand in their mindset how this is important. You know, um, where, for instance, one of the passages you talk about uh, where uh, the Quran says that uh, that Allah could have destroyed Jesus and Mary at any time he wanted to. I'm thinking, okay, but then you explain how that then in their mind, in their mindset, proves that Jesus can't be God because Allah could have killed him at any time. And 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 I I just didn't find the argument compelling. But number one, number one, I have to admit, on the first reading, I, I. I didn't see that as even an argument against the deity of Jesus, and it, it, it took a more skilled exegete of the Quran to point out what was really going on there. Yeah, it, it, it does take a few read-throughs, <laughs> and it, it helps to have dialogued with, uh, with people who actually believe the Quran is the Word of God uh, to, to start getting the, the, the sense of it, to start understanding what is an argument and what is not an argument, and to, to sense what... Uh, Know, what the Quran is really trying to communicate, and still, people who spend their entire lives doing that still encounter all sorts of passages in the Quran. You just go, I don't know, and uh, and they don't know either. But that's just sort of the way the way that things are with the with the Quran. But again, it's not just those passages, though. I mean, I was sort of focusing on that because you know that's what all Muslims agree is the very word of God. But it's the Hadith. It is the interpretation that then creates the schools of thought that you then have to deal with. Mm-hmm. And um, again, when they come from other countries, that's primarily what they've been hearing preached all of their uh, entire lives. Now, if you're talking to a westernized Muslim, now things are different okay. because now you're talking about people who live in a society where they are in the very small minority. And as a result, they've been challenged. They generally have, have absorbed Western ways of thinking, and they are going to argue differently than a Muslim who comes from a, another land. And I would have to imagine, I, I've never read any studies on it, but I would have to imagine that there is probably uh, some interesting um, stresses that are created within mosques uh, by the fact that you have a mixture of non-Western and Western Muslims in the same context. I, I would imagine that creates some divisions and some fractures and some, some difficulties. And of course, in, depending on where you are, if you're in a place where there is a very small number of Muslims, then the, your local masjid is going to probably cater to all kinds of Muslims. Uh, I took a class I was teaching at Golden Gate Baptist Theological Seminary over to the mosque next to ASU. It's actually on the campus of Arizona State University. And we had a dialogue there with the, uh, with the imam after the prayers. And 
one of the students asked, you know, what, what kinds of Muslims come here? Well, all. So they have both Sunni and Shiite gathering for prayer in the same place. Now, these are the same groups that are busy blowing each other up in Iraq, okay? Right. Um, in, you know, car bombs outside of, outside of Sunni mosques planted by Shiites, uh, car bombs outside of Shiite mosques planted by Sunnis. And yet when you have a really small, small, small population, they're all in the same place. You can start telling when an Islamic population has risen to a certain point, because in Dearborn, Michigan, you have Shiite mosques and you have Sunni mosques. So they start to divide once you have enough people to support that. Uh But you can sort of tell where you are as far as population goes by whether those mosques are still united or whether they have started to divide. Uh, sort of an interesting indicator there as to how quickly the population is growing. Interesting. So um, obviously the uh, Shiite and the uh, Sunni don't necessarily get along um, unless they're dealing with what they would perceive as a common enemy. Um, help us understand then, you know, from, you know, so that we can responsibly understand what's going on in the world of Islam when we have people flying airplanes into buildings, bombing embassies, uh, bombing, uh, you know, now the Boston Marathon or, or beheading people on the streets of, uh, of London. What is that type of Islam, and how is it growing? And how are the you know the different schools of thought within Islam responding to it? And uh, what steps are they taking that you're aware of uh, to uh, to you know to address that issue? Well, here's here's the problem. Um, obviously, there are are many Muslims in Muslim lands that believe that the West is persecuting them is uh, inhabiting their lands, um, uh, controlling their, their leaders. There is strong political animosity against the West amongst many Muslims, both uh, Sunni and, and Shiite. The question becomes, when can a Muslim engage in jihad? Jihad is a, a duty of a Muslim, uh, not just the quote-unquote internal jihad against sin, but the defense of the Islamic ummah, the Islamic people. And the question is, do you need to have a caliph? Do you need to have a leader of the Islamic people to declare a state of jihad? What are the conditions for a state of jihad? What can be done during jihad? And the problem is you have all sorts of non-radicalized Muslims. Now, the line of radicalization is frighteningly small from my perspective in light of what Muhammad taught. But that aside... You have non-radicalized Muslims who condemn what happened in Woolwich, who condemn what happened to the Boston uh, Marathon, and they will come out and say it. Uh, the problem is that you, those groups generally tend to be rather small. Those groups tend to be rather um, underfunded. The more radical ones tend to have lots of Saudi oil money and lots of websites, and, of course, our media is much quicker to pick them up than, uh, than anybody else. Right. But here, to me, Chris, is the real problem. These two different groups are coming at each other, and they are debating, but the, here's the problem. The sources from which they have to derive their conclusions are the Sunnah of, of Muhammad, the life of Muhammad, which is contained in the Hadith. I've read those Hadith. They are not consistent enough to bring about a final solution 
to this problem. Okay. So in other words, the sources that they have to use, the Quran and the Hadith, look, if you read Osama bin Laden, he wasn't stupid. And he made strong arguments from the Hadith. There are incidents in Muhammad's life that if you prioritize them in a certain way, you can come up with the theology of Al-Qaeda. You can do it. And when someone else comes along and says, oh, no, 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 they can't do this because of this, they can't do that, that, they're having to go to the same inconsistent sources and say, you're emphasizing the wrong stuff. You're emphasizing the wrong Hadith. You're emphasizing the wrong school of jurisprudence. You need to emphasize this over emphasizing that. Hmm. Well, okay, but um, that requires people to be really fair-minded and maybe really go in-depth in things. And I don't think that um, the guy named Michael, uh, standing there with the blood all over his hands on his, uh, on his kitchen knives after trying to decapitate a British soldier, is the kind of guy that's going to be doing the in-depth study to necessarily come to those conclusions. That's the problem. So in other words, you and I both know it's a whole lot easier uh, to preach uh, partial truths than it is full truths on our side. And guess what? It's the same thing over there, too. Got it. But even if, but, but even then, the, the sources to which they have to go simply are not consistent enough to bring a closure and a conclusion to this thing. And that means we're going to be facing this the rest of our lives and our children's lives and our grandchildren's lives, um, because Islam really does not have the internal capacity to decide this issue and to, to bring about unity. It just doesn't. So what you're, if I'm hearing you right, then, you know, the radicalized Muslims, the, the Al-Qaeda types, their argument is based upon what they would perceive as a valid interpretation of the Hadith based, uh, based upon a particular emphasis of particular portions of it? Exactly. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, look, I, I mean, what did, what did bin Laden say? He said, Sharia is God's law. Man will not be happy until he is obedient to God's law because God created us. Therefore, Sharia has to be established. And you go, okay, um, hard to argue with those premises. Now, now how you're going about doing it, is, you know, how can you justify that? Well, for example, people say, well, you're not allowed to kill innocent uh, women and children. But they go, ah, the problem is the same Quran and the same Hadith says that we are all born um, with the fitna as a result of the mithak. The mithak is the covenant that God made with us. The fitna is our knowledge of God. We are all born as Muslims. So we have apostatized. And the penalty for apostasy universally in Islam is death. So if we were born as Muslims, and now we're something else, we're not innocent. And therefore, there weren't any innocent people killed in those attacks. Oh, boy. So, so again, the, it, it all goes back to your sources and what sources you're using. And what I've been saying to my Muslim friends is, look, those of you who are against this, we need to see entire books written for us Christians in our language explaining why that reasoning is wrong. That's what we need to see. You may be doing this over in a corner someplace. We need to see this so that we can identify who's who. Right. And I, I would really love to be used to sort of see that happen. That would be great. I mean, I am co-authoring a book with a Muslim right now. It's not on that subject. 
but maybe if we demonstrate that you can write a book with a Muslim without compromise on the central issue, which is the difference between the Trinity and Tawhid, um, maybe there can be a way of, of doing something on that subject as well. All right. <laughs> It, it sounds really complicated, and so I, I, I'm curious, uh, you know, as a, somebody who's a bystander, not necessarily somebody who's involved in those types of conversations, to see whether or not that resolve exists within the Muslim community to uh, to write those books uh, and uh, and take on some of these people and their emphasis, uh, you know, their particular lens that they are interpreting the Quran through. Uh, that leads them to take the actions that they're taking. Now, historically, we've heard that uh, Islam spread at the at the edge of a sword. And um, when we look at uh, you know going into the late part of the seventh century into the eighth uh, into the eighth century, we see uh, major uh, Christian outposts within North Africa all succumbing to Islam. It's a it you know it literally wipes out. Some of the major bishoprics of uh, the uh, of the ancient church, we lose uh, Alexandria and Carthage and and other places like this. Talk then just a little bit about you know how Islam spread and you know what what impact that had not only the Christians who experienced its spread, you know what was their demise, but also what impact that has had on uh, on the Christian church as a whole. I think they created a political vacuum, but I, I'd be interested to get your opinion on that. Well, it is interesting that certainly uh, from 632 to 732, Islam spreads through military conquest. Now, they would argue that Islam did not spread, but the Islamic State did, and that if a person of the uh, al-al-kitab, the people of the book, whether Jews or Christians, uh, wanted to live under Islamic rule, all they had to do is pay the jizya. This is only levied on certain people. Uh, and they were allowed to continue to believe what they believed and practice what they practiced. Uh, they point out the fact that there were uh, certain uh, Christian groups that were more than happy to have the Muslims come in because the Byzantines had been so corrupt, and they would rather live under Muslim rule than Byzantine rule. Okay, um, but the obvious fact is uh, it has to be balanced with that is the fact that uh, Christian communities were driven out of the Saudi Arabian Peninsula uh, the very Christians of Nadran who met with Muhammad were eventually driven out by, by Umar and uh, displaced. They were not allowed to live there. Uh, and and what, had, what happened eventually is that because the highest positions in the culture would be reserved for the ruling class, for the Muslims, um, it was very easy for people to just go along and uh, live in that culture and have the opportunity of advancement rather than maintaining a minority Christian position. And, obviously, if there was a lot of nominal Christianity, which we would admit that there was, mm-hmm. uh, if you're a nominal Christian, it's going to be real easy to become a nominal Muslim as well. Uh, you go with the flow, you know, you just uh, whatever, whatever makes life easier. And uh, so you do see a, a drastic reduction. But there is a period of time... Uh, after that period of expansion, where an Islamic kingdom, an Islamic culture is developed that was not nearly as closed as the modern Sunni orthodoxy of, of today. Uh-huh. And you see the tremendous, there, there was a culture that was developed that had great scientific advances and literary advances and, and all sorts of stuff like that. But it was when Sunni orthodoxy arises and establishes itself that really many people would argue 
that led to the decay and eventually the destruction of that vast Islamic uh, empire. And I, I think they have a pretty strong argument hmm. that when you have that kind of, of, of orthodoxy, that strict orthodoxy that you see in Salafi Muslims and Wahhabi Muslims, you see it in, in Egypt and Saudi Arabia, um, there is insufficient intellectual rigor in that kind of a worldview to allow it to last for a long period of time. And while we may see Islam marching across the globe in some areas, the reality is once Islam established, is established in an area, it turns on itself. We see this. We see this. It's the, the only nations that survive in the Middle East are, are led by despots with armies. Um, how, you know, Iraq is not one nation. It's three nations. You've got the Kurds in the north, you've got the Sunnis in the middle, and you've got the Shiites in the south. And the only way to hold that place together is the way that Saddam Hussein did it, and that was with brutality. But the same thing in Syria right now. You know, uh, Assad was a part of a minority group, but you held it together. And the irony, the sad, and the thing that we really need to pray about, the sad thing is um, every in every nation where this has happened, it's the Christians who suffered the most. Right. The Christian population of Iraq has been decimated. The Christian population of Syria is fleeing um, because while Assad did not persecute Christians, uh, the people who are fighting against Assad are persecuting Christians and killing Christians right and left. And it's, it's just amazing that we're arming these people. Uh, but, the, the, I mean, our leadership is clueless of, about Islam, unfortunately. Uh, from I don't care whether you're a staunch Republican or a staunch Democrat. You're still clueless about Islam. And that has been demonstrated by how we have bumbled and stumbled our way through everything over there. Uh, but it's the Christians that are really losing out big time in uh, in those areas because it's this kind of Islam that's being established in those areas where they just want to drive all the Christians out. They're, they're coffers, they commit shirk, and therefore they're, they're to be driven out. And uh, that's what we're seeing happening all across the Middle East today. Complicated. It really is very complicated, and it takes some careful study and, and some intellectual rigor and uh, and so I'm I'm very happy and thankful uh, about the uh, the book that you've you know put together that'll at least help Christians in their interfaith dialogue and apologetic and theological discussions uh, with their Muslim neighbors and coworkers. Again, the name of the book is What Every Christian Needs to Know About the Quran. Uh, it's by Dr. James White. And Dr. White, thank you for coming on Fighting for the Faith and discussing this. I think we could probably go a few more hours and we still we still wouldn't like have really scratched the surface of what you talk about in, in your book because again it's it's complicated. There's a cultural divide, there's a language barrier, and yet if we're going to speak truth the truth and share the gospel, the good news with our uh, Muslim neighbors, friends and coworkers, um, this book actually provides some very good ways in which you can engage an intellectual, you know, intellectually honest conversation with them. And I, I think it might catch your Muslim neighbor off guard, uh, to, for you at least to say, I, you know, I've taken some time to study this stuff and would love to talk to you about it. Yeah. And, and it obviously opens up doors when they, them, when they, when they feel that you have honored them enough and respect them enough to have a fair and honest understanding of where they're coming from and why they believe what they believe, uh, that really opens up the doors. That certainly for me has been something that has opened up the door for me when I demonstrate to them that I know what they believe and why they believe it. And, uh, yeah, that helps a, a, a great deal. So you're, you're, you'll have to hopefully get over the fear of talking to them in the first place, have a foundation for doing so, and then only the Lord can give you the, uh, the real desire to uh, put yourself out there and, 
do what needs to be done. But they, you know, the funny thing is we will beat our heads against the wall to get secularists to talk to us. Yeah. Uh, but these, these folks want to talk to us. And we very frequently uh, run past them because we're scared to do it. Right. Yeah, that's true. And I, I think a lot of that fear may have a lot to do with the, the you know, the way in which the media mishandles a lot of these stories and, and their lack of understanding of Islam. So thank you for the service to the body of Christ and putting this book out there. And I, you know, again, if, I, if you, every listener to Fighting for the Faith really needs to get a copy of this. And what I'll do is I'll put a link up at fightingforthefaith.com uh, that you can, uh, you know, go directly, you know, to it's available in, uh, is it hardcover or paperback? It's paperback. It's paperback, and I, I have the Kindle version myself, which, by the way, does overcome the small text problem uh, <laughs> regarding the notes. You know, it's nice to be able to just click on the note, and then it jumps to the uh, the end note, and you can read it in my uh, real rapidly increasing font sizes as I get older. So, Oh, yeah, me too. Yep. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, Dr. White, thank you for coming on uh, Fighting for the Faith, and uh, look forward to next time we meet or next time I have you on the program. Thank you very much for having me on. I appreciate it. All right. Thank you. So what would you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you could do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, and follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ, his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>